today we have a very special guest to the podcast. We have Bill Duke. Bill is an actor, a producer, a director, a writer, and a humanitarian. He also leads Duke Media Entertainment, and it is such a pleasure to be speaking with him today. So welcome to the podcast, Bill. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate it. Awesome. So how have you been doing currently? So we know we've been in pretty unique moment of our lives, and I was just wanting to check in with you and your family to make sure everything is okay. How have you been doing over this time? Well, thank you for asking, and I hope you and your family are well, too. I love you, to be honest. We've been good. I'm hunkering down for the most part, but I get out from time to time. But be very careful, masks and wipes and shields and sprays and... uh, just to be protective and aware. And so um, my family's doing well too. My godson got the virus, but through natural procedures, he was able to beat it, thank God. He has some after effects, but basically uh, he used high doses of magnesium, high doses of vitamin C, zinc, and other things. Then he used to steam some water and put lemons in it, cut the lemons up, and put a towel over his head and inhale the vacuums from the steam. And oh yeah, within 10 days or so, he was much better. Yeah, I've heard of those of the face steam. So you put like essential oil in like pot of tea and then you can like put a blanket over you and breathe it in, clears your sinuses. I remember our friends used to make fun of me and Atma because our mom used to make us do that when we were kids. Like she would have like all types of like boiling water and throw a towel over our head and throw stuff. What I don't even know what she was throwing in it at the time because we were little. And our friends were like, why don't you get some real medicine? And my mom was like, no, that's what y'all are doing. In those days, those are some of the most brilliant people, you know. I just think ones in my family, you know, they didn't have a high school education even, but when it came to survival and practical solutions of survival, they're brilliant. Yeah, I remember our godmother's mom. Bo, she was like our other mother, but I remember when we used to get fevers, she would put onions in our socks to break the fever. Like she had, she had all types of remedies like that. Like anything that was wrong, she had something natural to heal you up. You ever hear of Pepto-Bismol? Yeah. Uh huh. <laughs> and they used to give us the same pills for every disease or anything. They'd give you the same pill. Yeah. <laughs> in those days, a doc used to come to your house. Oh wow, it was like a call that would come over. Yeah, you call the doctor, make an appointment. Came over, gave you pills, and shot. That was it. Nice. So with all this free time, have you started any fun projects, you know, since we've been able to stay home for a lot longer? Is there any new projects that you've been doing? Anything that you've gotten into? Well, there are a number of things. Uh, one is, um, it's coming out pretty soon. Steven Sodenberg, one of the best, greatest directors around. I'm in a film with him called No Sudden Move with Don Cheadle and some other great people that are in it, Matt Damon. Uh-huh. That comes out, I'm not, I'm not sure the dates yet. Also, I'm in a show called Black Lightning. It's on CW. And they're starting back up, so I'm not quite sure when I'll be shooting, but sometime in January. Okay. I was so excited to see Black Lightning in uh, live action, man. I wear big comic book heads, and, you know, that's a great show. Like, great cast and great thank character you. development. So, you know, thank you for bringing that to life, brother. Thank you, brother. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. Yes, Black Lightning. And, you know, doing... Other things also, I uh, got two directing things on my plate that I'm looking at. And I'm putting together my own network, my own online network called Unite, Y-O-U-N-I-T-E. In these times of division, I want to bring people together. I mean, I can disagree with you. But that doesn't mean I hate you. That's right. I exactly. just disagree. 
we disagree with it. Yeah. Still be a member of my family. I just, we just disagree. But these days, disagreements lead to all kinds of craziness. True. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, uh, people get their ego out of place or get bent out of shape. And, you know, you might be giving them constructive criticism just because you're disagreeing, but they take it as a blow to their ego. That's right. And the ego, Wayne Dyer, uh, uh, who is an inspirational speaker, you can see him on YouTube, Wayne Dyer, has an incredible saying about ego, E-G-O. E-G-O is edging God out. Mm. Yeah. I like okay. that. Edging God out. Yeah. I always wondered, like, what is it like to have a, a skillful disagreement? One where, you know, having unconditional love for someone, but having a different point of view. There's nothing wrong with that, but we have to be able to hold each other and discuss our disagreements and not, like, get mad about them. Well, a lot of disagreements are based on emotion, on emotions, and if you are in a disagreement with somebody, you bring up facts and research. Uh, if they haven't done the facts that in the research, they get pissed off at you out of emotion, but they're not dealing with the statistical information that you've come up with that contradicts their particular point of view. They're pissed off at you because you did the research. Yeah, Ali gets upset all the time when I bring up uh, statistics like I'm a better farmer than he is. And uh-oh, uh-oh, every year, I, my, my farm looks 10 times better than his. I'm a oh. the urban farmer in the hood. And, you know, he has a a master's, a master <laughs> gardener license or degree. And he's definitely not putting it to use. I, I It really should be, say, Ottman Smith on there, not Ali Smith. So wow. I try to give him so, I, I try to give him stats. But wow. so. I'll, all that I can really say is that he may be able to grow the food because he has a bigger garden plot, but I'm a much better chef than him. Our mom, our dad even calls his food measly. So, I mean, like, <laughs> I'm, I make the food. He just grows it. Wow, measly. That's deep. Right? <laughs> you can tell that brothers, right, Bill? You can tell that oh, brothers. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, no, I can tell. I know that. <laughs> <laughs> so good. So... In your acting career, you've been pretty much a badass. You've done so many notable roles. And I remember growing up watching Commando and Predator on Beta. You know, my dad had a Beta, not even VHS. So I remember watching those movies like an like a long time ago. And in both of those movies, it was with Arnold Schwarzenegger. So I'm actually kind of curious. So like, what was that like working with this man that is an iconic legend in his own right? How was it being on set with him and acting with that? I was fortunate enough to be in two movies with Arnold and I found him to be one of the most professional, humble people I've ever known. He was not an egomaniac. He was not a, was not a control freak, none of that. He was a collaborator. He worked together with the other actors and Predator particularly. It was, grew up in the, the jungle, Puerto Vallarta. And we took like 35, 40 minutes to get from the hotel going up this mountain with no guard railings, by the way, to our set. It's like the first week we were there, I'll give you an example, two things. The uh, caterer put netting around the food tent because we're in the middle of the jungle, man. We're like in the middle of it. <laughs> and uh, bugs used to be in our food the first week. And we'd say, take this crap back. We're not eating. But there was no other food. So by the second week, it was called protein. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what can I tell you? It's, uh, other thing I'll tell you, you know, the predator you saw, the beast itself, you know, that was not the original predator. Did you know that? Okay, the original predator was a much smaller vision. He had lasers coming out, was parts of his body and everything, but he was 
one half the size of the predator that you saw. But the actor who was playing that part had to wear this felt suit because they could superimpose the special effects in post-production. And it was like at least sometimes 100 degrees or more with humidity and they used to fly him through trees. And he had passed out twice due to dehydration. So the executive producer came over to him and he says, look, man, you pass out one more time, I'm firing you. He says, what are you talking about? I'm not passing on purpose, man, I'm dehydrated. But he says, you pass out one more time, you're wasting your time and money, you're getting fired. Two weeks go by, the guy's flying through the trees, bam, falls to the ground. Producer comes over and says, you're fired. That guy who's flying through the trees was Jean-Claude Vanda. What? What? That is crazy. It's the first job he ever had in this country. That's wild. That crazy? Yeah. That is. That's wow. pretty crazy. That he, is awesome. He, That's he, wild. He wanted to do great things and star in great films and stuff, but that was his first job and he got fired. Dang. Did the other guy they have pass out as well? No. <laughs> it was like six, six ballet dancer. I mean, it was a whole different concept, you know? Uh-huh. Awesome. Things that we even never know. Yeah, right? So speaking of Predator, so me, I remember me and my brother saw Predator in the movie theater. Like, I feel like one of our favorite things to do was like go with our dad to see movies and he was big into action movies. So we saw Predator in the theater and I remember we were blown away by seeing like you and Carl Weathers on there, like two strong black men kicking ass through the whole movie. You know what I mean? Like didn't die first or anything. Like <laughs> y'all made it like into the movie. It seems like a lot of those roles, like you all's roles in that movie, like James Evans Sr. on Good Times, Avery Brooks, and a man called Hawk, like a lot of those characters have disappeared since the 80s. Like, like what, do you, what do you think about all that? Well, I'm, you know, I love Black Panther and a lot of the other movies that showed black heroes and stuff. I wish we could see more, of course, and I think you're right. There's nothing wrong with comedy. There's nothing wrong with any of that stuff. But, you know, seeing black men in certain roles that are heroic, I always applaud that because we need to see more of that. And we don't see enough of it in society. Many times you see us, okay, we're athletes, which are heroes too, and rappers to a certain extent, heroes and actors. But in terms of our image, in terms of what used to be, we don't see that as much anymore, and I agree with that. Yeah, I remember our dad would make us watch A Man Called Hawk. I remember he saw the first episode, and he would, like, sit us down. And like, even though it was after our bedtime, like, back then, it was like, now y'all gonna watch this show. And I remember he was so pissed off when they canceled it. Mm-hmm. Great show. Yeah. All right, so I know I got a question. Um, Menace to Society. Uh oh, uh oh. All right, so that movie was a game changer, right? I know for sure, probably everyone on this call once has said it in an entire generation at one point in time has said, you know, you done fucked up. You know, you done fucked up, right? Right? Like, so, I mean, when you were making that or even afterwards, I mean, it's had such a a huge impact in the world and, and so many people. Did you? expect that type of reception? You know, did you think that film would be as impactful as it was? Not at all. I mean, I had no idea. I mean, I've been very fortunate to travel around the world in a lot of ways. And I've made a lot of films and all the rest of it. I was in Japan and China. Young people would come up to me and say, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. No, you don't fuck up, right? (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. And so, you know, all the films I've made, that's the one that for whatever reason, you know, um, sticks with people in terms of, you know, the phrase, the quote itself. 
I know every morning for breakfast, I used to eat Eggos and uh, my brother used to try to take them. And instead of saying, let go my Eggos, I would say, you know, you didn't fucked up, right? <laughs> Great. Did he give them back to you? Uh, no, he didn't. He just uh, punched me. I was bigger, brother, so I could I could debo him for his Eggos. <laughs> Bill, a lot of people know you as an actor, but don't know how deep in the game you are as a director of like fame. Hill Street Blues, A Man Called Hawk, movies like Deep Cover and Rage in Harlem, and, you know, one of me and my brother's favorites, Hoodlum. How do you use your talents in ways and make impacts and projects you're involved in behind the scenes instead of in front of them? That's a great question. I, to a great extent, my preference is directing and producing hmm. because it gives you a voice. When you're an actor, your voices are the lines that you're given by the writer and director, which is nothing wrong with that. You have to interpret those lines that are, you are given. But when you're directing and producing, you're creating your own lines. You create the lines, you create the context, you create the perspective. So you have the ability to have more influence on what they call motion pictures. You know, you have the ability to interpret visually what something means. Because directing basically are, two, as I say all the time, two components. One is the creative process. You collaborate with the writer and the producers and the actors and coming up with the vision for the film and for a scene. And so the creative process is one aspect of directing. The second aspect of directing is management. And if you don't, you're not a good manager, you're not gonna work. And you're managing three things, basically. Time, people, and money. If you cannot manage time, people, and money, you can be the greatest genius writer in the world. You ain't gonna work very much. Because at one time, I tell this all the time, I was very frustrated. This is years ago. I go into a networking studio and pitch my idea. Oh, that's a great idea. We like that. We'll get back to you. It never got back to me. So I got so pissed and so frustrated. I went to my agent one day and I said, man, what is that about, man? You know, I go in, I pitch, they say they like it laugh and smile, da, 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 and get back to me, never do. He said, Bill, did you answer the most essential question in the first five to eight, ten minutes of your pitch? I said, no, what question is it? What is that? He says, here's the question that they mostly want to know the answer to, Bill. How in the hell are you going to make me my money back? So I go with passion, I'm my grandfather's grandfather's sister's baby, and they was a slave and they came through and they listening, they listening. I've told them nothing about the audience, the gender of the audience, the number of people. I've talked about my passion, but not the business. And it's called show business. Show, it should be called business show, actually. <laughs> That's the reality. That's wild. So when you were coming up, becoming an actor and, and finding your voice and getting all these roles, you were coming up in a white male dominated industry and how did that affect some of the roles that you had? How did that affect, you know, applying for certain acting gigs? How did that land for you being a person of color in a, in a male white dominated industry? Very good question. Uh, now there's some very white males and females that were great to me and give me breaks. David Jacobs at not landing. That was my first gig. And other people too. But to your point, being a tall, black, dark skinned man during that time, in terms of lead romantic roles, 
I was in a show called Palmerstown USA. Norman Lear and Alex Haley produced it, and I was the lead black character in that. That was one of the only a few times I was made a male with a female person in my life that loved me for who I was and how I looked. It was very, very rare at those times. And very painful not to get those roles because, you know, it's like if you didn't look a certain way, you weren't considered um, visually, visually valuable. So yeah, you almost had to like visually fit the role before they even would interview you, right? Well, if in those days, like these days, you know, dark-skinned Blacks are considered dangerous, not part of this culture, anomalies. So once you stop trying to fit in and you embrace and love who you are and your ideas and your visions of things, it then forces you to either continue to beg to be discovered or you start discovering yourself. And I think today that's, that's an urgently important thing. When I was coming up, there was no internet. I mean, none. Zero. Zero. I had the first cell phone. You know how big it was? I do. I remember those huge. It was like a, like a brick. Yeah. Like a brick. I, I'm, not, I'm not exaggerating. It was this big. You had to carry a little box with it. Mm-hmm. And there was no internet, right? Today, with the new phones that are out, if you don't have a camera and you're a filmmaker or you're an actor that wants to record their scenes with in an acting class and edit it instead of just a picture, you can do it like that. They have editing programs online. They have sound programs online. They have free music online. There's nothing or nobody stopping us today except us. Depends how bad you want it. A friend of mine told me, he said, there's a big difference between partying and celebrating. He said, most people just go out and party because they're frustrated, get drinks, get drunk, and have a good time, dance and prance and sing. He said, but celebration is partying about something you've accomplished. It is a big difference. And he's right. I love that. I'm <laughs> celebrating. I'm celebrating all the time from now on. No more partying <laughs> for me. Good. My brother mentioned uh, Hoodlum earlier, uh, and it's definitely one of those movies that, like, every time it comes on, I sit and I watch it. And you told the story of Bumpy Johnson in that movie. And there's a lot of stories in Hollywood that tell the story of black men, but it seems like that most of them are slave movies. You know what I mean? But there's a lot of black men that helped shape this country and the way it was built and the way it is today. If you could tell anybody's story that was a part of shaping this country that's not a slave story, like, whose story would you tell? Wow. Hmm. Paul Robeson. He was a champion football player. He was a champion scholar. He was a champion actor, a champion singer, and a champion politician. He was a genius and never, ever got the recognition that he deserved. I mean, Jack Johnson, boxer, fighter, because he dated white females, never got the recognition he deserved. I could go on and on and on. I mean, there should be... A documentary, documentary series made on the life of Sidney Poitier. A lot of young people don't even know who he is or what. They don't even know the impact. Another documentary should be done on Melvin Van Peoples. Sweet, sweet, back's badass song. The first 
real black man to have two plays on Broadway at the same time. I was in one of them and do Sweetback, Sweetback's Badass Song with a lot of his own money because he was an, a Wall Street genius. And he made a lot of money on Wall Street and financed his movies and other things. And here's a man that wrote Sweet Sweetback, starred in it, filmed it, edited it, put the music in it, everything. No, I was gonna say that's the part of Melvin Van Peebles you never hear. Like I feel like I watched his son's document, his son's movie about making that movie, and they never mentioned his Wall Street genius. That's pretty crazy. Wall Street genius. Sounds like you got a lot of work to do. You got a few series you got you got to start getting together. Yes, <laughs> no, sir. <laughs> well, I need his finances. <laughs> y'all hear that? All y'all listeners, y'all hear that? Don't. Uh-huh. Well, you have the equation for people, actors, time, and money. So there we go. So but I read in some article somewhere, I don't know who it was, some actor, actress, when they were asked a question about meditation and they said something along the lines like they didn't like meditation because they felt it kind of let them like it brought up a lot of these emotions and feelings and kind of like released them. And they were like that they kind of wanted to keep all those emotions and feelings in because they drew from that to get, you know, their juice for their characters and stuff. This sounds like a lot of BS to me. So, but I was wondering, first off, you know, you've been meditating for a very, very long time. And I'm sure a lot of people don't know that, you know, and that's one of the main reasons we want to bring you on the podcast. And I mean, your roles have spanned such a wide array of characters and emotions and stuff like that. And, you know, so I just kind of, I had read that somewhere and I kind of want you to speak to, you know, how, how do you feel about that? Well, the person who said that, that's the reason they should be meditating. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I shouldn't, I shouldn't say that. I'm sorry. But anyway, my point is you know, I've been meditating since the early 70s. As an actor and a teacher of acting, meditation does not in any way take away from you being able, as an actor, to call upon all of the voices that are in you. This person is talking from ego and intellect. Acting is not acting, acting is, is really being becoming the individual that the writer and director have asked you to become. And that's, and we are everybody, we have everything within us, every character. And people say, well, why can you say that? You're, you're, you're not a murderer, we're not murderers. I said, hmm, my goddaughter, let me see. If I came home one day, I found somebody on top of my goddaughter, raping her against her will, and I had a gun in my pocket. What am I going to do? I would like to be able to say, excuse me, sir. You're going to be a murderer that day. You're going to be a murderer (laughs) that day. (laughs) A murderer that day. Because if it's a question of me saving my daughter or being the humanitarian that I am also, at that moment, I don't think he's going to survive. So what I'm saying is I don't agree with that statement at all. I mean... There are a lot of male actors that are not gay that have paid gay characters. You know, there are a lot of actors that play executives. They're not executives. But we all have those things in us that we can call upon. What meditation does, it it centers you. And it takes a lot of that stress out of your system. See, without meditation, we have what we call dis-ease, internal disease. And many times that disease causes disease. See, dis-ease can cause disease. Meditation helps get rid of the dis-ease. 
So he and I disagree. I love it. I love all that you just said there. I'm in complete agreement with me. Our teacher used to always say the dis-ease thing to us all the time. He used to talk about how we have everyone and everything inside of us. So you reflect or respect. So you look again and see yourself and everyone. So everything. Wow. It's beautiful. Beautiful, wise words, man. Thank, Thank you. you so much. It sounds circumstantial. So because you say like, oh, I'm not a killer, but depending on the circumstance, you're like, oh, I'd, I'd fucking, <laughs> oh, it's on. <laughs> <laughs> That's what it sounds like. So it's like portraying a role is to get in a circumstance in which that role is enlightened or being able to be played. Yeah, also surrendering to that part of you, you know? I call it falling into darkness backwards. Falling into darkness backwards. And there's something there that's going to catch you. It's your talent it's your genius it's your trust it's a lot of different things it's not just saying lines i'm going to say this line like this i don't believe it then one of the biggest parts of acting it's going to sound crazy is listening why is that because one of the biggest part of acting is listening not thinking about the next line you're going to say but you're responding to another human being and what are you responding to what he or she said or felt but you got to listen in order to do that. It's powerful. Oh, yeah, that that's wild. Because most of the time, you probably are thinking of your next line. You're like, shit, what's the next line? As an actor, you're portraying a role that they don't have lines. They have the person they are. So it's like you got to sit in the moment and soak it in. Yep. You told us you've been meditating since like the 70s, before it was even a thing. And we understand that you do uh, transcendental meditation and I actually found a quote that says, transcendental meditation has saved my life. I still do it. I do it twice a day, every day. We're curious, how did you find TM, transcendental meditation, and how has that journey affected your life and your acting career? Transcendental meditation saves not only my life, but it saved the life of the haters around me. Put it that way. <laughs> okay. I was um, living in New York, my career had gone up and down like this. I had fallen into drugs and alcohol, and uh, it was not good. And a friend of mine saw me really sinking. I eat a tank of mama. She was a meditation TM teacher. And she told me several times, Bill, come on, you got to do something with this about yourself. I said, get out of here. One day she came, she said, you know something, you should meditate. I said, I said, I said yeah, you a hippie, get out of that damn hippie shit. But then things started getting worse and worse and worse. And she said, Bill, just try it. I said, okay. So like a week or so, I tried it. I kept taking drugs and alcohol at the same time when I was trying it. So she said, Bill, if you meditate for two full weeks and not take one drug or one alcohol of any kind, if you still want drug or alcohol after that, I will buy you an ounce of anything you want. I said, what? Sold. <laughs> oh. Because <laughs> my assumption was, this ain't going to work. I'm going to get my outs. It's all going to be fine. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. She kept a close eye on me. Every day she'd call me, keep an eye on me, and see how I was doing. And the first week, I felt a little bit of something. Then during the second week, something really powerful began to happen. You know, I a lot of the stuff I was getting from the drugs and the alcohol I was getting from meditation. The release of stress and tension, the focus, 
the appreciation of myself as a human being, sitting alone by yourself in isolation just for 20 minutes, just being you healing you. And I say it saved my life. I'm not exaggerating because around, I would say a week before I started meditation, um, I was at this party and this friend of mine had this orange yellow stuff on his baby finger. So I just had some drugs and I looked over, he said, he said, hey, Bill, try this. And I get this close and my buddy John said, no, man, don't, don't do that to Bill. Don't do that. It was heroin. Damn. So that's how close I came. So God, somebody said, you believe in God? I say, no, I don't believe in God. I know God exists. Because that, I could tell you many interventions in my life where God has intervened and I've seen the God within me and the God of the galaxies coming together there's something I'm supposed to be doing. And until I finish that job, I'm going to be here. But that's, that's how close I came. The meditation saved my life. I think I eat it until this day. That's beautiful, man. So, I mean, here you talk about meditation is, is um, and the way it's affected you. It's a beautiful thing. I think um, a lot of people don't realize that it's like, it's a universal practice that's made for everyone. You know what I mean? But, um, being a black man that meditates, like there's certain kind of things that are stereotypes or stigmas around it. I mean, it might be seen as soft or it might be seen as something just for white people. You know what I mean? Like, um, how have you overcome that and been able to share the practice with other people and continue your practice? Uh, I think most of the people actually have seen the difference in my life. They look like, what happened to you? You don't look the same. You don't, you're not da 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 I say, you're right. And I tell them that the meditation's why. I don't get as angry as I used to get. You know, I don't, I'm not perfect, believe me, I'm not saying that. A lot of negativity that was in my life is no longer there, and I'm a better human being. And people who recognize that, they're going through similar things that I've gone through. And they ask me what, what the solution is, what did I? And I tell them meditation. I tell them the discipline it takes to care, not just say you care about yourself, but literally care about yourself. I mean, take actions that prove that you care about yourself. And some of us just keep sinking, sinking, sinking lower and lower and lower and somehow believe that's where we should be. Or that, you know, the, the system, the man, or the system has their foot on our neck and is crushing our neck and our spine and has a foot right near our cheek crushing our neck. And my whole philosophy is, okay, there's a big giant. And they have their foot on our neck. It's so big that you can't even see his head, his or her head. And I'm saying, but damn, the least you can do is bite his toe. If his foot is on your neck, what you got to do is turn a little bit, crunch. You ever have anybody bite your toe? You ever had your toe, have you had your toe hurt? Toes are tender, you know that, right? Hell yeah, stub a toe is like, oh my goodness, damn, it's the worst. Or like if you're a parent, you step on a Lego, that, that's, that's the worst pain ever. At least, at least bite his toe, right? Yeah, snap a pinky or something. That's right. You know, a lot of people associate yoga with like bending up in a pretzel or in meditation and being on a mat all the time. But one thing that our teacher always told us that, you know, if you practice one hour a day on the mat, there's still 23 other hours in the day. And if you are grounded and present on the mat and you're an asshole off the mat, then you're totally missing the whole aspect of yoga, the truth behind truth. yoga. Truth. What does your off the mat practice uh, look like? And, you know, when you're not actually meditating, how are you embodying your practice? Well, the thing is that your practice embodies you. 
You see, the thing is, is that there's something beyond the intellect. You know, we're being observed by something within us that's beyond our thoughts and our actions because something sees our thoughts and actions, right? That thing that sees our thoughts and actions, the more it's recognized, the more we live within the context of that. I mean, there are things that I used to do when I was a young man, I don't do anymore because when I watch myself doing it at this age, it looks stupid. But observing from a certain point of view is very helpful, put it that way. Us observing ourselves. Yeah. Make any sense? Definitely does. Thank you for that. Thanks, yeah. When we ask everyone this at the end, you know, we're big believers in that uh, love is one of the most powerful forces in the universe. It's the uniting force in the universe. How do you define love? I define love as egoless behavior. Mm. Egoless. I love that. I love that response. (laughs) And the other thing is, if you don't love yourself, you really, really can't love anybody. Beautiful. Love's got to start at home. You look in the mirror, you got to love that person. And we're taught not to love that person because of how he or she, how he look, what they did yesterday or didn't do yesterday or fears or insecurities or whatever. But the fact of the matter is, that's where you got to start. You know, people, I think it's at 60-some percent of people uh, that get married in this country get divorced because we're looking for someone else to cure the pain within us. That person that we marry, that they're supposed to solve our problems, our emotional problems. They're supposed to make us feel loved, make us feel um, at peace within, comfortable. It's good to have someone that will do that. But until uh, you can um, love yourself, it ain't going to work. They're, they're never going to be enough for you. It's, ne- it's never going to be enough because you're asking them to fill a hole for you that you can only fill. And I know it's not easy. I'm not saying it's an easy thing to do. But if you're talking about life and what life is about, really, in my opinion, in the final analysis, it's about you loving you, you caring about you. I have a book coming out called The Journey, and it's going to be an animated feature, too, a short little feature. It talks about the journey that we all take in life. We go and accumulate all these things, right? And then we stop, and we say, wait a minute. I was told if I had all these things, I'd be happy, and I'm miserable. Who lied to me? (laughs) (laughs) Everybody was lying. That's what it was. Why would lie? I'll tell you something else. The last thing I'll tell you is this. It's like 20 years ago read this article in Variety, this producer, that is me, executive producer on some hit shows and stuff, really famous, wealthy, 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 great influence. And the, the reporter was interviewing and said, hey, man, you know, congratulations on your success. So he guy said, thank you. And um, he said, the reporter says, I'm going to be honest with you, you know, most people in Hollywood don't like you because, you know, you've, you're, you're, you're a very harsh and very uh, difficult person, they say, and all of, all of that. You know, and you seem, you seem pissed off. And the guy says, yeah. And so the person, well, how do you explain that? I said, okay, when I first came to Hollywood, I was like everybody else. I had my dreams. I had my wishes to produce and everything. And got disrespected, turned down, betrayed. So I realized I'm not going no place unless I can a tray and dictate and da 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 So I started climbing the mountain. 
I stepped on faces of friends of mine. I stepped on their backs of people who trusted me. And I took advantage of opportunities, sometimes not so blah, blah, blah. But then I got to the top of the mountain of success. And guess what I found up here? Ice and snow. Chili. That is awesome. <laughs> he said, wouldn't you be pissed too if you had climbed all this way and all you found was some goddamn ice and snow? <laughs> <laughs> I never forgot that, man. I never forgot that story. Mm. It's been a pleasure, gentlemen. Yeah, it really was. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing your stories. Yeah, man. Yeah, uh, this was a dream come true, man. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, you so have much. no idea how much our dad and our friends are going to be envious of us uh, doing this interview with you. Well, God bless you all, man. You're doing good work and great questions, and I really appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, thank thanks you. for Stay joining us, too, man. Yeah, thank you so much. Be well. Peace. Thank you for listening to Look Again Podcasts. Please feel free to share this content with your friends and community. Also, please consider donating to our Patreon page. You can find us at patreon.com and search for Look Again Podcast. Anything helps, and we really appreciate your visit. Thank you so much. 